passage in John chapter 12. You just heard it read. Um, Thank you, Stephanie, for reading it for us. It is um, a story that even though it's right in the middle of the Gospel of John, it takes place at the very end of Jesus' ministry. And so as we jump into the story, um, I want to do a couple things. I want to describe where it's at. I want to talk about what this story looks like in the other Gospels. This is one of the stories that we at least find something similar to it in all of the Gospels. This is a story of Jesus' anointing. In John chapter 12, verse 1, it says very clearly that we're stepping into the story six days before Passover. This is the Passover that leads immediately into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which um, is really an eight-day span, though Passover itself is a singular day's event. And this story says that we are six days prior to that taking place. But I think it's probably important to know what does lead up to this point in time. In the chapter that precedes, we find the story of Jesus going to the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha because Lazarus has died. In chapter 12, we are back at their home in Bethany. Bethany is probably just a stone's throw from Jerusalem. There is an area past the Jordan that's further away called um, the area of Bethany, But the town of Bethany most likely is a location that is probably as far as from here to the airport. Might be a good distance between where we are at right now and where this suburb of Jerusalem is. That's where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. Jesus had been there a little bit while before when he raised Lazarus from the dead. That was such... Such a miraculous event, so captivating to the people that it upped the ante for those who were in power. Jesus is now beginning to garner such attention. He already had a great deal of attention, but now, now with this miracle, this raising somebody from the dead, the people that were beginning to follow Jesus for the first time, and those who had been thinking about it for quite some time and now thought, wow, this is the one. Those who were in power, particularly those who were in power within Judaism, were very, very anxious at what was about to take place. Because if it garnered too much attention, it would get the attention of Rome. And if Rome got anxious about a new leader rising to the top, they would do away with the great arrangement that the chief priests had with Rome. They got to be in their position of power because the powers in Rome allowed it. And they didn't do that with others. But they did it here. This caused great concern. And so... We find in chapter 11 that Caiaphas says this person must be put to death. In fact, we are told that he had actually, during this year of 
him being the high priest, had had a prophetic moment and had said that Jesus would die on behalf of the people, the children of God. I don't know what his posture was concerning that prophetic utterance. I don't know really what his posture was toward Jesus other than he thoroughly believed that Jesus needed to die. In fact, he spoke up to the others and he said, you're just not getting it. It is far better that one person die on behalf of the people instead of this getting out of hand and causing chaos for everyone. It's my paraphrase, but that's what he proclaims to the others. And so they are looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus, and Jesus retreats from Bethany, where he raised Lazarus from the dead, to an area called Ephraim, a town. Probably like going to Ramona, in terms of the distance. It was an area that, um, a town named after an area where the family or the tribe of Ephraim, when the 12 tribes of Israel entered into the promised land, they were given a certain allotment of land right in the middle of Israel. And down in the southeast corner of that area where the family settled, there developed a town that was named after the area called Ephraim. Jesus and the disciples retreated to that area. But now, it was time for the Passover. Jesus was ready to make his way back to Jerusalem. And on his way back to Jerusalem, he stopped just outside the city in Bethany. And here we have the story of Jesus' anointing. Now, I want to acknowledge that there may be some, if you spend any time reading Scripture at all, that might read this story and say to yourself, it feels like it's missing a part, or this sounds different than what I remembered it being. If that's the case, it would make sense because the four different stories that are told in the gospel don't all line up exactly the same in terms of how the story is told. But all four gospels tell a story of Jesus being anointed. In Matthew chapter 26, Um, I believe it starts in verse 6. We have a rendering of Jesus being at the home of Simon the leper. And in this location, a woman comes and breaks open an alabaster jar and pours it on Jesus' head. And there are some who begin to grumble among themselves at the waste of such an expensive perfume, often used at burial time, spikenard, because it was worth a year's wages. How much smarter for that to be sold and some relief given to the poor? Mark's rendition in chapter 14, I believe it starts in verse 1, is almost identical to Matthew's story. In the home of Simon the leper, a woman comes, breaks open a box of alabaster filled with perfume, pours it on Jesus' head, and certain people grumble. In this case, a different individual is mentioned. I believe it's um, 
um, more general, says uh, that uh, either the people grumble in this one and Simon in the other one are reversed. I can't remember exactly which. But somebody begins to grumble about the incredible expense of perfume. And in both stories, Jesus confronts their grumbling and responds by saying, the poor you will always have with you, but not me. In Luke, it feels like a very different story. In the first two, Matthew and Mark, it says it takes place two days before the Passover. In Luke, it seems as if the story takes place earlier in his ministry, maybe up near the area of Galilee, and it says that it's a woman of ill repute. She breaks open a jar of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes it up with her hair. And then there is an interesting confrontation by the person whose home it is, named Simon a Pharisee, who says if Jesus only knew who this was, who was wiping his feet with her hair, he'd rebuke her immediately. And Jesus confronts him. And the story concludes by him proclaiming proclaiming forgiveness of sins to this woman. So here we have John that seems to have components of all three of the stories. And some that only he has. It says that it was six days before the Passover in verse 1. But it could very well be that several days have passed between verse 1 and verse 2 when the dinner takes place. We're told that Martha is serving and that Lazarus is there, but there's a chance that it could be at their neighbor's house, Simon. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are just invited to the dinner. It says that a Mary comes. She is a woman. We don't know what her reputation is. It's not made out to be bad, as the Luke rendition says. It says that she breaks open a jar of nard and pours it on his feet, doesn't say that none of it gets on his head, but it says that it's poured on Jesus' feet and that he wipes his feet with her hair. In all four storylines, Jesus confronts the crowd that's mumbling or muttering. In this fourth one, though, he confronts Judas in front of the others. So let's look for a moment at John's story and what it is that it seems John might be trying to get across as well as what Jesus is saying. It says very clearly that Judas is grumbling that it could be sold and the money given to help relieve the plight of the poor. John then goes on to say, but this wasn't really Judas's intention at all. He's a thief. He used to steal from the money purse. He used to take what he wanted and what he could get away with. That seems to be the author's depiction of this. And the writer is, we believe, one of the disciples, John. So he watched it happen. He has good reason to be ticked. He knows that Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. And so he calls it out. Jesus' response to Judas, I haven't quite yet decided what I think Jesus is doing. It sounds like Jesus might be rebuking 
Judas. Because he says, the poor you will always have with you, but not me. But I wonder, Jesus, it seems to me when I read the stories that surround Judas, seem to have compassion on Judas. Seems like Judas was probably an outsider in many regards. It appears as if he comes from an area that's different than where the others come from. It doesn't seem like he buys into the whole storyline like the others have bought into the storyline. He was the treasurer for sure, and probably not a very ethical one. And probably there were questions that were raised, and he probably often felt like the person who was the odd man out. So is this a rebuke? I'm not sure. There's a chance when I look at this that Jesus is actually affirming Judas' words even though John is clearly saying that, John, that Judas doesn't believe what he's saying, Jesus sounds like he's affirming by saying, the poor you will always have with you, which are words that are taken right out of Deuteronomy 15. Could be coincidence, but I never find anything that Jesus did that just was by coincidence. So you go back and look at Deuteronomy 15. And in Deuteronomy 15, we have an interesting commandment from the Lord. It's a commandment concerning how we are to live with one another as the Israelites move into the promised land. It's a rehearsing of the law right before they go in to take possession of the land. And the admonition is this. When we go into the land and you obey the commandments of the Lord, you will be blessed There should not be any poor among you. If there's anyone in need, you should live with an open hand and generously give to those who are in need. And if there is someone who is in debt to you and it comes to the seventh year and they can't pay back their debt, wipe the slate clean. A similar admonition was told concerning those who had a debt they couldn't pay and so they sold themselves to a fellow Israelite to be in slavery to them to try and help work that off. During the seventh year, all of those for whom that had happened were to be set free. And there was a huge caution that said, and when it comes to the fifth and sixth year, don't start getting stingy. Don't start thinking to yourself, oh, we're almost to the seventh year, I'm not going to lend to anyone because... I'm going to have to just let go of that whole debt. Jesus said, I mean, God said uh, to the people who were about to take the promised land, no, 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 keep an open hand, stay generous, trust that the Lord will bless you as you move into this land and obey my commandments. And at the end of that passage, he says, you will always have poor among you. And it seems as if it's a reference not to the Israelites, but to the foreigners who will be in the land. But live with an open hand toward them as well. Live generously because I'm your source, says the Lord. So Jesus, it seems, is affirming what Judas has asserted, that we should take care of the poor. And Jesus is saying, 
you will always have the poor with you and be reminded of that passage of how we are to live. However, there was a standard among the Israelites that an act of mercy towards someone who was dying always took precedent over an act of mercy toward the poor. And so Jesus is trying to communicate once again, pay attention. My death is imminent. Mary is doing the right thing, the appropriate thing. Don't miss it. What a contrast between these two. I'm not sure I I can make a direct correlation from that Deuteronomy 15 passage to how we should live now. I don't know what it means to try and live that way within my neighborhood, my city, my state, or my country. But I do know that it calls me to wrestle with what it means to live personally that way. And what it would look like as a community of faith to try and live with an open hand, a generous spirit. But I think there's something that precedes that, that Mary might have to teach us in this passage. We're in this series on discipleship, and I've asked us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and just see what we learn. Discover Jesus again, and in so doing, discover ourselves and then discover ourselves if we are in relationship with Jesus and what that would look like. So as we stand along the wall of this room and watch what's taken place, it seems so obvious that Mary gets it and Judas does not. So what is this that Mary gets? And I don't want to miss the other characters in the story. Martha's busy serving helping take care of things. And I don't know that this is at all a contrast between Mary and Martha. It could very well be pay attention to both of them because between the two of them, we get a complete picture of what it means to live faithfully. But it seems to me that Judas is going through the actions of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ without the relationship of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And before we're too quick to blame Judas, I would say that he's pretty indicative of all the disciples. The very next day, Jesus is talking to the disciples and giving a powerful teaching to them. And he says to them, if you really know me, then you know the Father. In fact, you do know him and have seen him. And one of the disciples, Philip, speaks up and says, What? Just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus goes, Do you not know me even though I've been with you all this time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. These words I'm telling you, they are not my own words. It is the Father who lives in me doing His work. The disciples are somehow missing this intimate relationship. 
but not Mary. In fact, some would suggest that if we were in the room during this anointing, we might be scandalized by what we saw. Such a violation of social order and protocol. Mary, a woman entering into this table area. We're not told there aren't any other women, but it's likely that there weren't other women that weren't serving. She sits at Jesus' feet as he's reclined at the table, pours perfume out on his feet, and takes her hair down. Some would say that gesture and that culture likely reserved for a husband and wife, and begins to use her hair to wipe his feet. Such an intimate setting. Such a scandalous moment, maybe. And it would make some sense that others would look on and feel incredibly awkward and not know what to do. An intimacy of relationship. Mary having received such love. It broke down all barriers for her. Nothing else mattered but to show her love in return. Maybe because of that relationship, she was one of the very few who understood and listened to Jesus and knew that his death was imminent. It was just hours away. Wanting to show her love before the burial, not after or during. Which raises an interesting question to me. What was she doing with Nard anyway? If it's to be used in burial, her brother just died within the last few months. Why wasn't it all used up on him? I don't have an answer for that. Go home, study it, come back and tell me the answer, and we'll address that at a future time. But she has this precious ointment. And Jesus' acknowledgement of her is an acknowledgement of her insight of her gesture, of her intimate relationship. I think that may very well be one of the most frightening parts of discipleship. I think it's a grand notion that we all nod our head to, but I think for many of us, the notion of intimate transparency before my creator is incredibly threatening. It's so much easier to go through the motions of religion. It's so much easier to do all the right actions and participate in the sacraments in particular ways. It's so much easier to play the part of Christ follower. And I don't think very often we think we're playing But the call is not to that. Those should be an outgrowth 
of the relationship with our Creator. A relationship where we are fully known. And in so doing, we begin to understand what it means to be fully forgiven. And if you feel fully forgiven, that can't help but flow out of you into forgiveness for others. Until I am fully loved, it's very difficult for me to have unconditional love to anyone. It's conditional all the time. Because I haven't had all the parts of me fully loved, I'm still looking to have those broken parts and the needs therein met by someone else. And so I love in this kind of sporadic, unselfish, selfish way, meeting my needs in a variety of ways. But when I am fully loved, it can't help but flow in love to others. The contrast between Judas and Mary is so profound because it's the contrast between going through the actions and being in relationship that just produce actions because of the relationship. There was a, um, a typo this week in the sermon title. And I so liked the typo that I said, well, let's just keep it the same. But they changed it on me. It was originally um, sacred extravagance. And the typo said sacred extravaganza. (laughs) And I so liked the notion of a sacred extravaganza that I said, keep it. But somebody ended up changing it. And so on our website in the bulletins, it got changed to extravagance. But let me tell you why I love sacred extravaganza. Because it just sounds like an oxymoron, like those two shouldn't go together. Because sacred seems so personal, so one-on-one, so private, so intimate. That's exactly what I was thinking it meant. (laughs) Extravaganza just sounds like this huge party that everybody's invited to and and, um, all kinds of action and activity. And I thought that's exactly how it should go together. I'll tell you one of my struggles with the trip that we went on to the Holy Land. And I don't even know if it's a struggle, but I'm still trying to make sense of it. There was a dramatic contrast between the things that I got to see around the Sea of Galilee and what we saw in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it felt like the three major religions that have found a home there, all of those three major religions try and take sacred spots and to make them holier by creating edifices over them or cathedrals on top or a mosque to acknowledge the importance and sacredness of that spot. And so you go and visit along with many others who have made a pilgrimage there and and it just feels like there has been such an effort to create a visible testament to this place that somehow it's lost its simplicity. In the Sea of Galilee, it was as if none of that had taken place. 
I could go up on a hillside that, as words believed, was the um, Mount of Beatitudes, where the Sermon on the Mount likely was given. And just look at the beautiful red, what they call lilies of the field, mixed among other daisies and other flowers. And I, I could see a sunset or a sunrise over the Golan Heights and, and nothing obstructed the view. I, I could go into the cove area where it was likely that that might have been a spot where Jesus pushed out in the boat a little ways to teach to the people that were on the shore. I could take a boat and just go to the other side. and It all feel, felt very natural and simple. And In fact, I thought I'd like to buy a lot on the Sea of Galilee. It just would be a great place to be. What made all those places sacred was that Jesus made them sacred in the moment. He made them sacred by giving a woman worth. He made them sacred by healing a leper and giving him a chance to enter back into community. He made it sacred by caring for the hunger of the crowds that gathered. He made it sacred by stealing away to a quiet place and praying. It wasn't all of the adornment that made it sacred. It became a sacred extravaganza because Jesus was there in relationship with the people. So, this morning I just want to ask, what would it be like to go deeper in a relationship with your Creator? A relationship where you intimately get to know one another more deeply. A sacred moment like parents holding on to a child and knowing what each cry means. That your Savior knows the part of the heart that hurts. You don't need to hide it that our actions would arise out of the relationship, that allow us to push past certain social boundaries that don't need to be there, that allow us to put, push past the boundaries that culture says we shouldn't push past, but we know we ought to because it calls us to bring God's Spirit and to make something sacred because Jesus is there. Sacred because of relationship. That, my friend, is extravagance and becomes the most wonderful extravaganza that we could ever imagine. I don't think it's a typo at all. I think it's a much better rendering of the call to intimacy with Christ. Father, thank you, Lord, for inviting us to a table 
that we might know you better. You've not called us into acts of generosity, but into a relationship that produces a character of generosity. You don't simply tell us to forgive. You invite us into a relationship where forgiveness has already been offered. And out of that flows, Lord, a spirit that can't help but forgive because of what you've done for us. Lord, sometimes it's hard. Because we don't have you tangibly to touch. But you said so clearly to Thomas, blessed are those who have not had the opportunity to see but still believe. So in that blessing, Lord, invite us into a place where we might be fully yours. A relationship where we confess ourselves to you, live authentically and transparently. God, for each one of us, relationship looks a little bit different, but it's still relationship. Don't let us hide behind some nomenclature that that's not our personality style, that's not our giftedness, those aren't our strengths. God, help us to be both like Mary and Martha. Help us to learn what it means to serve well, to participate in those things that make a difference compassionately in other people's lives. Help us equally to be like Mary, whose heart has been touched so deeply by your love that we can call it nothing less than relationship. God, I know the cost is great in discipleship. It costs us everything that we think is everything. But in exchange, you give us everything that the depths of our heart desires. What an easy trade that should be. Oh, Father. Thank you for beckoning us, pursuing us, and loving us. May we learn what it means to be fully yours this week. Amen.